Like, are people talking about how great John Carter was? No, no, John Carpenter. John Carpenter. Okay, I for this whole time I thought you were talking about the Taylor Kitsch on Mars no. movie. I, yeah, I guess his name is John Carter, John Carter of Mars. No, fuck <laughs> that movie. It was fine. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, San Diego. Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains, and you sounded like you were going to finish a sentence. I'm coming on with about three and a half, four hours sleep. Oh, welcome to my world, baby. Uh, For like the last two weeks, basically, I've been getting up like progressively earlier and earlier the other day i was up at 4 a.m i am i am old man i am like aarp foster okay well hopefully it doesn't happen for either of us while we're in the middle of recording but this might be the nap cast (laughs) the nap cast yeah it might be some like nice asmr of us snoring right like soothing sounds white noise put some people Mm -hmm. to sleep Whatever happens, I'm actually at the peak of energy right now. I just had some cheeky noodle soup. I'm feeling a lot better than I was while I was working. So I think I think we got it together. Today, we're going to be reviewing. We, we got an Edgar Wright double feature. That's right. Yeah. I'm doing it right to right. We're going to be reviewing his newest um, narrative film, uh, Last Night in Soho, which came out in theaters. And... Uh, available on Netflix now, his documentary, The Sparks Brothers. Yep. I uh, put a question up on Twitter for our Twitter followers and for our fans and listeners to uh, send in some some of their answers. I thought, you know, we watched The Sparks Brothers. It's all about this uh, rock and roll group that never really got their due or was a little bit underrated or, you know, were always almost famous. Yeah. And so I kind of was thinking about that in terms of movies. Like, what are some movies out there that are, that were, for all intents and purposes, made with commercial intentions, but didn't hit, or maybe they, they had their time, but have kind of faded in, in people's memories? Underrated movies. Yeah. Yeah. And you specifically like added the caveat of like, you know, not like cult films or, you know, not right, movies yeah. that. Not things that are like obviously obscure or, you know, like, you know, not trying to like stump people. That's why I, 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 uh, said, you know, had commercial intention. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of movies out there. Some people might just call them catalog titles that, uh, they just kind of come and go. They don't really make a lot of movement out there, but every once in a while within those, within that realm, there's these gems that people should look at more than they did. So uh, let's go ahead and I'm, I'm going to read the answers that we got on Twitter first, and then we're going to give a couple examples from, from us. Okay. Uh, Sean, friend of the show, Sean, Sean Walters says rock and roll, the uh, guy Ritchie film. Oh, was that guy Ritchie? Didn't that was the one with Gerard Butler. Yeah, didn't it come out like a while ago though? Like he's done a bunch since then. He did. Yeah, he's, that was like before 
he started like doing licensed stuff like blockbuster stuff yeah, yeah like king arthur and you know stuff like that and then he's kind of been going back to those roots and rock and roller was kind of his last movie like that one of those you know uh geezer gangster movies from england and then he went off and did other stuff for a while and now he's kind of like doing that again but um i saw rock and roller i was a little underwhelmed by it at the time because i was comparing it to you know lock stock and snatch and even movies that are sort of like in that universe like like layer cake and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um and i didn't think it matched up at the time however i would be willing to watch it again because i'd like to see you know one of the main characters is tom hardy a younger tom hardy and i uh you know he wasn't really a thing then so i kind of want to watch it and look at that performance now knowing tom hardy is tom hardy yeah sure yeah no that does sound interesting um speaking of guy Ritchie. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I flew to New York and back, I watched a couple of his other newer films, um, The Gentleman and uh, Wrath of Man, which came out this year. Uh, they're they're both pretty good. They're both fun. Yeah, I remember hearing good things about The Gentleman. Um, yeah, it, well, I, I actually remember hearing bad things about it. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, this was actually, you know, like a fun Guy Ritchie movie. Sure. Uh, the Adventures of Mike and Steph, I'm guessing, is another podcast. Uh, they said Atlantis, The Lost Empire, the Disney film. Um, I've which- heard that um, both Atlantis and Treasure Planet, they both came out around the same time. I've heard both of them kind of gotten, uh, you know, like they I think they've kind of found their audience later. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's just that their audience who was watching Disney at that time. Like that was their era. It's yeah. like home on the range and like, you know, Atlantis and like those kind of films, chicken yeah, run or whatever. Anybody said now oh, they're man, old and home on the rage was like <laughs> secretly lit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've heard there's a little bit of a reappraisal for Atlantis. Um, I, I think I saw that one in high school, actually, it was like one of those, like teacher didn't have a plan. So they have, but they had a VHS copy of Atlantis for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I probably didn't give it its full attention, but um, there is that. Uh, Chris Crampton says Fila Day. Now, this is a little bit more obscure than what I'm talking about, but I did look it up. It is a, I think it's a French animated film about cats. Okay. Make sure I got the, the language correct on that. It might not be French. German. Oh, actually, right. German in Denmark. Um, yeah, so never heard of it. And then under that, funnily enough, uh, someone named Storm Range says Cats, 100% Cats the movie. Oh, uh, yeah. That, he, he, <laughs> this is Daniel. He uh, He's in the comedy project. Okay. Um, yeah, no, apparently he loves Cats. Like, like he's all about it? Like this is not a troll? No, no, he's, he's into it. Okay, well, I feel like that movie does kind of have a bit of a cult audience now. Oh, absolutely. I I wish I had been able, like, I wish I had gone to see it in theaters. I, I want one of those, like, rowdy screenings of Cats. Like, you the know. kind they do at, like, Alamo Drafthouse. Sure, it's, sure, it's yeah. Like, it's like full-on Rocky Horror at this point. Yeah, I think, I, I, I think 
some of the theaters in LA were, were showing it to a cult audience. So um, maybe you still have your chance. Uh, Chris Griswold says 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is a good answer. I like that one. I, I, th- I, th- I do think that movie's underrated, actually. Like, a lot of people didn't see it or they were confused by it because it wasn't a direct sequel to, to Cloverfield. Um, yeah, I, th- I didn't, I did not see it. I, um, mm-hmm. I have only seen Cloverfield and then the shitty one, the, the space, one like, that came out on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. The Cloverfield project or whatever. It Paradox, was I think it was called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 10 Cloverfield Lane is a cool little bottle episode thriller that takes place in a uh, bunker. It's three characters in a bunker, you know, all about, you know, character dynamic. It's a kind of Night of Living Dead-ish okay. in, it, in, it, in the way that it approaches the subject matter. Um, it's much more about the people than it is the outside threat. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, it's good. It's good until it isn't. And that's all I'll say. Okay. Uh, let's see. Julaine says annihilation, which we stand annihilation on this podcast. Yes, Everyone knows do. that. So. Yeah. I 100% agree that it is underrated. It did. It, yeah. It did not do the numbers that it deserved. Uh, no, I actually refrained from saying that just because we've talked about it so much on the show. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that definitely would be on my list, but I, I feel like that movie is starting to trickle out there now. Like people are starting to see it. So. Yeah. I think it might have like a, like a John Carpenter effect where people didn't appreciate it for what it was at the time. And, you know, 10 years from now, they're going to be like, cause I feel like that movie's still a, a nothing movie. What? Like, are people talking about how great John Carter was? No, no, John Carpenter. Oh, John Carpenter. Okay, I for this whole time I thought you were talking about the Taylor Kitsch on Mars no. movie. I, yeah, I guess his name is John Carter, John Carter of Mars. No, fuck <laughs> that movie. It was fine. It wasn't like bad, but it wasn't like good. Right. Yeah, that's what. That's why I was confused. Uh, we got a few quote tweets, so let me check those really fast. Oh, um, somebody said Jackie Brown. I I feel like there was a point of time when that was true, when Tarantino came back with Kill Bill and Kill Bill Volume Two, and and um, it seemed like a lot of people sort of skip over Jackie Brown. But I feel like that's changed. I I, I feel I like actually, that's the that's almost like the cool answer now. Like if somebody said, "What's your favorite Tarantino movie?" You throw them off by saying Jackie Brown. Uh, I still think this. This uh, counts. I, I, I mean, sure. Yeah. Yes, it does have, it, it does have that kind of like hipster audience. But I, I think it's still probably like his least appreciate. Well, maybe the hateful eight now. Maybe that'll be the, the new, new one. Cool answer. Yeah. Um. It's probably still his most underseen because because it is a little bit more low key. It's in between bigger projects. It's a little harder to market to like a younger audience or isn't like that immediate, like, you know, gal with a katana sword kind of, you know, marketing that you can do. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, the real ones know that it's, that it's great. Um, there's been a couple of answers added to this since the last time I looked at it. Like uh, Lu- uh, Logan lucky. That is a great answer. Yeah, that is a, that is a solid answer. Uh, yeah. I 
also. totally a catalog title, but done very, very well. As yeah. Soderbergh has pretty much made a career of doing exactly that. <laughs> I actually, uh, we recently rewatched that um, mm-hmm. a month ago or something. And yeah, it's just a damn solid heist movie. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. Adam Driver is really good in that one. I mean, he's mm-hmm. great in everything, but I like his part in that. Um, let's see. Somebody said David Fincher's The Game. Oh, okay. The Michael Douglas live action role playing movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's probably that's kind of his Jackie Brown, right? Because that that got released on the Criterion Collection, but I feel like a lot of people just skip over that. They you know they see Seven, then go right to Fight Club. Um, the game is good. I think it's a little, I think it's a little bit more style than substance, but it's good. Yeah. It's definitely worth a watch. It's, it's basically, it's kind of like Fincher doing Hitchcock. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, KMH says Vox Lux. I I don't know what that is. Do you? Uh, it, yeah, that was like the one with Natalie Portman, right? Where she was like, Oh yeah. I'm looking at the cover now. I, I forgot this movie happened and thought maybe I dreamt it. No, it, it, happened. it is a movie no, that was real. Saw it, so if it is good, then yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. This is a first I've ever heard someone vouch for it. Weird. It's written and directed by Brady Corbett, the actor. I don't, I don't know. He was in, uh, he was one of the killers in the American funny games. Um, oh, he, okay. Uh, he was, he's, he's, he's like a weird indie guy. He's in a lot of like little things like that, but yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Hmm. Might have to check out Vox Lux. It's on Hulu. Maybe we'll make that a, a homework at some point. Okay. So that's all we got for our answers. And we appreciate everyone sending those in. That was very last minute. So I'm surprised we got that many. Um, Keith, what is one of yours? Uh, one of mine, I think, is the most underrated comedy in the last, God, I don't even know, decade, I guess. Before you uh, say it, I I have this one, too. I, if, we're, if we're on the same page, it's also on my list. What are you going to say? It definitely is on your list. Uh, pop star, never stop, never stop, never, never stopping. stopping. Why yes, is this every time I go somewhere and I see the, like the DVD or this the Blu-ray for sale for like three ninety nine at big lots i'm like what the fuck that is a great movie it's such a good movie it's hilarious it has a a great soundtrack Mm -hmm. um this movie to me that is like the number one most unappreciated movie because it's just it it never really found its audience and and even still like you know the the mckay farrell movies even the the worst of them have their diehards Right. And get quoted all the time and stuff. But I'm like, no love for this movie. What is going on? Do you think it was just that the Lonely Island bubble already popped and people were just like not into the idea of it? Had it come out like at like the peak of jizz in my pants, it would have been the biggest movie in the world. Uh, I don't think it's entirely that i think a lot of it was marketing uh because everyone yeah. i everyone i know who's seen it loves it right right so why did it not get the word of mouth you know i i don't know i don't i don't think it's just that i don't because it, the movie itself 
doesn't rely on them being the lonely island and no but i mean i mean it was i think it was marketed pretty heavily on that because it was directed by yorma and it was um you know stars andy sandberg and it's all about music and that's pretty much their whole thing but like i don't know i i don't think it's that i it maybe maybe it is maybe it's because they weren't on snl anymore at that time yeah that's what i'm saying like the the generation that was obsessed with those Lonely Island videos when they were going viral on on YouTube and stuff like early YouTube. They're wiping toddlers butts now. They're not going to the movies. I guess. I don't know. It's still. Different. I don't know. It is. Totally. It is a mystery. But I, I agree with you. It's it's one of the better comedies of the last 10 years. Yeah, I, I think it's more that it's very hard to sell a comedy anymore especially if it's not just like instant streaming right um i i think people just don't generally go to see comedies in theaters that much Mm. and you know it wasn't really a known quantity because yeah the lonely island has their fan base but it was never you know they were never movie stars like you know they did hot rod and it had its like cult following, but but that yeah, like Hot Rod is a bigger movie than Popstar, yeah, which is weird to me. It is. Oh uh, well, first one I have on my list, maybe this is a little culty. I don't know. You tell me. Go from 1999, the Doug Lyman film. Oh, uh, no, I think that's fair. I I don't know. I thought that movie was all right. I don't know how underrated it is. I feel like it's perfectly well rated <laughs> i feel well i mean it was sort of a it's 1999 right so it's like right at the tail end of like the gen x movies but like yeah. you know there's a little bit more of a conceptual crime movie it's, it's basically like if clerks and and pulp fiction had a baby yeah it's it's like yeah it's like if Tarantino did reality bites. Right. Yeah. It, it, and it has a, a, you know, kind of a nonlinear structure, very Tarantini in that way. Um, ton of talky characters, but I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's really well made. Um, it has a crazy cast of just like a who's who of like young, hot actors at that time. And yeah, I think it's just really well scripted and well put together. And there were a lot of like, Tarantino babies that came out around that time that were not nearly as good. Um, yeah, that's true. And I think that that one still stands up pretty, pretty well. Um, I, I, it's actually, I think the soundtrack is more well-known than the movie because it had that uh, steal my sunshine song with the yeah. tie in video. Yeah. I remember seeing the CD a lot. Yeah, it was, a, it was definitely a soundtrack movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but people should go back and look at it. It's, it's if you like Pulp Fiction, if you like Empire Records, Reality Bites kind of type stuff. Yeah, it, it, it holds up, I think. Yeah, cool. All right. What's one of yours? This one, I might have to justify a little bit because it was, you know, it was a hit movie. Uh-huh. Um, but I think in context, it's kind of underappreciated. I think Blade does not get talked about enough in the superhero movie conversation. Uh-huh. I think uh I, I think at this point with the MCU, 
you know, we're starting to get to the point where people are glossing over, I mean, not Spider-Man now because of all the hubbub about the new movie. Right. Um, but, you know, like X-Men franchise kind of petered out. Um, Spider-Man, you know, is always going to be in the conversation. Those were definitely like the early DNA of superhero movies. But every like, I just don't think Blade gets enough credit for being a, a cool ass superhero movie with a totally different vibe and also being, you know, a decent like horror noir. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It came out pre-X-Men, I think. Yeah, it was like 98 or something was the first one. It was before yeah. any of this MCU shit. It was like, so I yeah, I think it just kind of gets forgotten about. I, I, I know people are starting to talk about it a little bit more on Twitter and stuff because of uh, the, the Mahershala right, yeah. Blade coming eventually. But I still, I don't know what Blade is going to be like in the MCU. It'll be... I don't either. And that's one of the things that make that kind of sets it apart. Um, When they, when they went out to make blade, they weren't setting out to make a big franchisable comic book movie. Exactly. Not, they went to make a, a cool vampire movie with kind of a black exploitation edge. Exactly. It Um, doesn't really feel like a superhero movie in the same way that we have them now, but I I mean, it was, it, it was more part of that pre-matrix leather and techno kung fu stuff absolutely i it for sure is uh yeah. i think it came out yeah like a year before the matrix or something mm-hmm. but and, it was all part uh, of that that time period you could actually throw go in there a little bit um yeah yeah but uh, uh, yeah so i think it's even though it was a hit you know it had two sequels mm-hmm. um, now the uh, third I, one I it's, it's actually interesting to look at it that way because by the time you get to blade Trinity, mm-hmm. which in my mind is the worst of the three. Um, absolutely. That's at that time, superhero movies were a thing and they, and they sort of retrofitted the tone to, yeah. to match what was going on. I think that's a lot of why Blade Trinity is not good. Um, yeah. It's, it's where, kind of like, fanboy. Blade two kind of does that, but there's so much Guillermo del Toro to it. That right. It, you know, it doesn't feel like it's pandering or anything. It just feels very different than the first one. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's a weird trilogy of movies because, yeah, the first one is more kind of just like a cool, violent action movie, hard yeah. R vampire movie. The second one is kind of like a, uh, a tour piece in a way within the context of a franchise, but also with like, you know, like this cool, like superhero vibe yeah, and a little bit more kind of leaning into the horror as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the third one is straight up a comic book movie. This, the third one also feels like a made for TV movie. It is like, well, I was David S. Goyer who, I uh, had previously only written the others, and I think it was the first film he directed. It it was but, also yeah. just during that time. It was really hard to keep the magic for a third movie. You know, yeah. I mean, Spider Man, X Men, Blade. They all have that like whatever it comes after a sophomore slump, junior slump. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, the la- the last one I have on here 
this is a movie that was nominated for Best Picture, but I think it doesn't get talked about enough these days. Um, and that's Quiz Show, which I believe was the yeah. first Netflix homework I ever uh, assigned you when you joined the show. The first, but it was it was pretty early on. Yeah, this came out the same year. It was nominated in the same batch of films as uh, Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction, oh. 1994. But I think Quiz Show is, you know, it was a big movie at the time. And obviously people talked about it. And I remember John Totoro hosted SNL and they did a whole like Quiz Show thing for the uh, for the monologue. So there, it was it had its time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, since then, since being a prestige film in 1994, nobody really like goes back and looks at it or just watches it as a movie anymore. Um, and it just it's just a really good, solid, fun period movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with, with like without doing that thing that any kind of period movie has to do nowadays, where it's just like overly dramatic right yeah it's not it's not like in that uh, imitation game king's speech sort of like austere way yeah, which uh, that's really what i, I mean it, you know we've talked about the sort of death of the mid-budget movie right a lot on this podcast but um i you know i think not getting movies like that now is part of that because now if they're going to invest the time and and money into a movie it's got to be fucking oscar-y you know it was directed by uh robert redford and it was made with a lot of attention and skill and Mm -hmm. you know certainly i'm sure they were not embarrassed to be nominated but i mean if you look at it it's really funny Mm -hmm. um and and it has kind of a, a cheeky like tone to it um the you know it has two leads that are like very complicated characters. They're not like either either of them are like entirely likable or unlikable. And you kind of have, you kind of like feel sorry for both of them in a way uh, getting caught up in this like scandal. And, and it, it it tells like a, a fun, weird little piece of television history. That's like mostly forgotten unless you're a big uh, venture brothers fan. Um, (laughs) But yeah, Which, I, and they reference fucking everything. They re- so. yeah, yeah, they do. No stone left unturned with no. uh, with those people. Um, but yeah, I think Quiz Show is like if you ever see that pop up on TV or if it's on a streaming service, definitely watch it. I think it's a lot of fun and a, and a, a good meaty movie. Yeah, I, I remember liking it. Uh, okay, yeah, and for my last one, I have one more. Okay. Um, which it was another one that we reviewed as a streaming homework. Um, I picked the uh, Adam Wingard's The Guest. I just really fucking loved that movie. And like, I didn't even know when it came out. I'd never heard of it. The only way I'd heard of it was when uh, Brian O'Connell came on the podcast and told us about it. So, right. Uh, I knew I, about I, it because Richard seen it and friend of the show, Richard had seen it and was, uh, really into it at the at the time okay yeah i didn't i didn't know that uh, but i've never heard anybody else really talk about it and and i know you know it was one of his first movies and i'm sure it wasn't expecting a huge release or a huge audience yeah. for it or anything but i still just think it it's the kind of movie that sort of feels bigger than its budget mm-hmm. uh every know, dollar's on screen 
Yeah. And I think like, you know, they do like the action so well and, and, um, and it's such a, just a good character build that especially how Adam Wingard's kind of blown up to directing shit like, you know, Kong V Godzilla. Right. Uh, Yeah. I think it's easy to miss. So. Yeah. It, I think it, you know, it had, um, there's a bit of a cult audience for it, but I think that it is not talked about at the same level as movies like your next or it follows or the Babadook and the movies that kind of came out around that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a cool thriller. Yeah. Highly, highly recommend. Liked it a lot. Okay. So let's go ahead and just start on our Edgar Wright journey here yeah. with uh, last night in Soho. Um, do you want to describe the story last night in Soho is about this young woman, uh, Eloise who lives out in the country with her grandma, the English countryside, and she wants to be a fashion designer. So she gets accepted to a fashion school in London, um, and decides, you know, to move out to try her, her luck, even though she's had some, issues with anxiety in the past and her mom uh, had committed suicide. She sees the ghost of her mom. So she goes to this designer school and immediately is just like kind of out of her element, out of her comfort zone. Her roommate is a nightmare um, who just like (laughs) wants to be famous and party all the time and talk shit about her behind her back. And so she pretty quickly decides, you know, living on campus isn't isn't going to work for me. And she finds this place, uh, this like quiet flat in Soho. Um, and she it's right across the street from a a French bistro, which always smells of garlic. And there's like this big neon red light that's shining through her her window at all hours. Yeah. So as she um, moves into this place, this, you know, quiet flat, she starts to dream about this woman from the past who's played by uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. She's plays a character named Sandy and uh, Eloise has these vivid dreams where she feels like she's living through Sandy. She feels like she's reliving these lives. Mm-hmm. Um Sandy, you know, has kind of a similar story. She moves to London, uh, but to become, uh, you know, like a, a singer, a famous singer. But she's also sort of the opposite of Eloise. She's very bold and charismatic and not afraid to go after what she wants. And she quickly meets up with a manager played by Matt Smith named Jack. And uh, as uh, Eloise, you know, keeps coming home and, and dreaming at night. She keeps reliving Sandy's story further and further, and things start to take a, a dark turn. And yeah, I, I think I'll just kind of leave it at that. Uh, it becomes kind of a a ghost thriller. Yeah, sort of a a gothic mystery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the key things um, about this movie uh, that you left out of your description is that Eloise has this sort of obsession with 
London in the 1960s. Yeah, that's true. She yeah. has this she very idealized version of 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 London in her mind, and one of the reasons why she wants to move to the city, and she she loves things that are sort of antiqued or antiquated. Like she, you know, has a little like um, suitcase style record player. She plays The Who and The Kinks and Dusty Springfield and yeah, all has, that like, like British invasion stuff. Vintage records. Yeah, and she she makes all of her own clothes, and it's all styled after kind of the the late sixties London look, and when she starts to have these dreams and experiences as the, this character played by Anya Taylor-Joy, she is also sort of taking, she's taking in 1960s London, which she loves, but she's also sort of inspired by the fashion and stuff, which she brings into the classroom. So the reason I want to emphasize that stuff is because that's the stuff I love the most in the movie. I really loved the, like first half of this movie, it was when it was like Lady Bird meets Midnight in Paris. Uh-huh. Um, and I love this this character, you know, both the character played by Anya Taylor Joy and um Eloise. I really loved um kind of kind of how she's pitched as a character. She's she's quirky, but not in a a manic pixie dream girl kind of way. She feels like a fully rounded out real character. Yeah. She, she doesn't feel like this. Yeah. Like weird idealization. Like she feels, yeah, she feels like honestly, she feels like someone who, you know, is from a small town moving to a big town is a little naive, right. uh, not totally, but uh, you know, um, you but, know, but, she... but fairly naive. Yeah. And Thomason McKenzie plays her. Um, she, people might remember her as one of the leads in um, in Jojo, Jojo Rabbit. Um, she was really she was good in that as in well. The, the movie about the beach that makes you old. Which I did not see, but she's not. very good in this. And I think she brings a lot to that character. And yeah, it's, it's a little bit Midnight in Paris, a little bit the mask in a way. Like, you know, she's like, kind of living out this like fantasy in these in these dream scenarios and at the beginning you're not sure if what she's witnessing in these dreams are just a fantasy of like this idealized version of herself um in an idealized version of london or but but they also uh you know they they let you know very quickly that she sees her her dead mother's ghost so you you, yeah, you know, I didn't actually read that as literal at the beginning of the movie. I read oh, that really? as like she was just, you know, yearning for the spirit of her mother to be around or like she, uh, you know, seeing her in the sense of like, oh, my mother's always with me kind of way. Oh, I, I definitely read it as I can see. I see dead people. Ghost. Yeah. I, I, it's funny see, I, I did not. And maybe maybe if I had if that had been more in my mind going in. I would have felt better about the second half of this movie. I think when the, when it takes the horror turn um, and things kind of go more in line with genre directions, mm-hmm. um, I feel like a lot of the things that make this character interesting start to fall by the wayside. She becomes in, instead of this, like, uh, you know, character who wants to go out there and make a splash and, and and have her own you know sort of unique point of view in the world she becomes this very meek um passive character who's just sort of running and screaming and and feels like she's going insane and nobody believes her and 
and she kind of turns into more just a vessel for the plot. Well, I I don't know because I think I'm gonna kind of I'm gonna disagree with you on this because I think the movie does a good job early on setting up that a she sees ghosts i thought that was very clear and b (laughs) and b uh you know her mom moved to london also Uh and had a nervous breakdown uh i'm presuming she was also sensitive some kind of medium um and killed herself so you know there's also this anxiety that you know, she is just making it all up and she is just becoming her mom and she's just going crazy. Like, yeah, I mean, generically speaking, when it does go into the that territory, when it starts, mm-hmm. when he starts to pull from the things he likes and we sort of know the things he likes, um, yeah. you know, judging from his, you know, horror comedy and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of like early giallo. And 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 some of the way these these like uh, violent scenes uh, are I lit and shot, a lot uh, of blood and black lace comes to mind, especially because of the fashion school stuff. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting that like this year or or right now, like yeah, it, it seems like a lot of horror directors are are pinning their love letters to Giallo movies. Yeah, uh, the, this one definitely goes there, but there's a, there's also sort of a a like sixties paranoid um psycho thriller kind of thing like repulsion and and uh carnival of souls and like those kind of movies too mm-hmm. um and yeah you know i i think he does all of that stuff well on a technical level but i feel like the narrative thread gets a little loose and i and i start to connect less with the character i I know what you're talking about and I don't entirely disagree with you because I, I do think the movie hits a point where it is all about, it does hit a point where it's all just about the forward momentum. Um, yeah. And I, I, I'm of two minds about it because I, I do agree with you. I, I think the best stuff is at the beginning of the movie. I, I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the more interesting stuff, but I also liked all the genre stuff. I, I liked where the story goes, but I, but it does feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect between the two stories. I, I well, and this, I, you know, I kind of had a similar feeling with um, Baby Driver, although I think I like that movie a little bit more than this one. But I feel like now that he's not, now that there's no comedic distance from the subject matter. You know, he's he's coming at these genres um, from a more grounded, sincere place. It's mm-hmm. not all irony, like in the way Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead or The World's End is. Mm-hmm. Or even uh, Scott Pilgrim, which was, you know, kind of somebody else's story that he was telling. But I think with Baby Driver in this movie, he's having a difficulty, I in my mind, being able to sort of do the genre stuff that he loves and be able to keep the characters connected to it in a way, in the same way that he, that I think he does successfully in his comedies. It's like now that he doesn't have the ironic distance that, you know, sending up the genre stuff, he hasn't figured out what to put in its place to keep that stuff connected. Again, I kind of, I understand what you're talking about, 
but I, and, I, and this is all to say, I don't think this is a bad movie. I'm just grading him on a very steep curve because he's made very, very good movies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. His, his catalog is insane. Um, you yeah. Know, he, he's had, I think weaker movies, but I don't think he's ever like totally missed. Um, yeah. I, w- but, I, w- I didn't come away from this going like, well, that was a turd or anything like that. I just, no, I, I, I felt myself at the, up towards like the last third of the movie being like, I'm just not having as much fun right now as I felt like I was going to be having. I, yeah, I, I almost feel like his storytelling is just a little more confident or was a little more confident when he was making, you know, these smaller British movies that yeah. were so, you know, were, that were just like, a, like you said, kind of, um, but I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what it is, but I, I, I get you. I get what you're saying. This movie's outrageously British. Well, yeah, it is. It is very British. Um, <laughs> so, well, but it, it was. I don't love playing script doctor here because I don't think that's necessarily what our role should be. But I, there's a point in the movie, you know, she, she has this or there's this boy in her class who has a crush on her and they start, start to have this kind of flirtatious relationship. And that uh, relationship is sort of introduced late in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a moment where things are clicking again and things are connecting again. And it's when she and this guy, when she tells this guy all the stuff she's going through, and then they start to try and figure out this mystery together. And I thought to myself, this should have been the movie rather than just have her be this passive, you know, paranoid person who loses all of the cool traits that she had at the beginning of the film. They could have played this as more sort of a mystery noir that takes place in a supernatural environment. I think, I think more than anything, because I, I do think that is there. I, I think more yeah. than script issues. I think it's more of maybe a pacing issue. Cause yeah. that's to me where it was kind of got weird. Right. Cause it, it just feels like, feels like the, her starting to go crazy stuff mm-hmm. takes, takes a long time to sort of build to this fever pitch, which in and of itself isn't bad once we get there uh it all sort of resolves itself very quickly from that point yeah just sort of it hits this point where it's like everything's out of control but not almost like the movie's a little out of control yeah and i think a little bit of that is fine i think there's definitely that's what i meant by like you know the the kind of like psycho thriller stuff where what is real, what isn't real, what's in her mind, what isn't, and all of that stuff. I think the histrionics, you can kind of like play up on that. And I get I get like what he's referencing and where he's going with that. Um, but I, I just feel like you can do that in a way that doesn't sell out the character for plot. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I never felt like the character was sold out. So I, I do, I, I'm not with you on that. I felt like, I knew who she was. I, I felt like all of the the groundwork was there. Um, mm-hmm. it, for, for me, it was, I don't know. It was just like, a, but I, I get what you're saying. I just can't quite put my finger on it. it. But ultimately, yes, I agree. I think the beginning of this movie is very, it almost just feels like it's interested in different things than what, you know, what the genre stuff comes in later and has to be. Right. Um, but 
that being said, because I feel like we've talked a lot about that. Um, I, yeah, I do think, you know, the ending is maybe a little flawed. Um, maybe like, maybe it's how she gets some of her clues. I don't know. Um, I mean, some of that stuff is just fairly rote and silly and boilerplate, but I'm fine with that because we're, we're in that world. Yeah. Like, you know, like what I saw twists coming from a mile away and, you know, sure. Sure. If I had one complaint story wise, uh, it's, I wanted the ghost mom to play a bigger role because they set her up so early on that I was like, I thought that was going to have more. I thought that was going to have something to do with the character's resolution, right? Like the the whole thing is this character is choosing to, to leave her life, to leave these ghosts in the past and to try and move on. Right. But then when she tries to move on, uh, it it doesn't work out well. Right. So I, I was expecting her to kind of need to this need to rely on her past. Um, But yeah, that never really has any kind of, satisfying uh uh story repercussions which to me is is a little bit of a missed opportunity um but i do think this movie is shot gorgeous it just the whole yeah. thing looks so great yeah and, and um, i think he does a really good job at capturing both 60s london and modern london and being able to blur it so that you can it's not like you know she blinks and all of a sudden there's a mcdonald's there or something like that it's like it's a little bit more subtle than that there's a style that plays all the way through yes yeah uh i think both the leads anya taylor joy and who you know is always incredible yeah um, and thomas and mckenzie are great um i think they're both doing a lot of really fun exciting things Mm -hmm. um matt smith is great all the performances are great um yeah, I mean, for the most part, I really enjoyed this movie. I I think it's a it's a fun modern ghost thriller thing. Um, yeah, it might be a little messy, but to me, that was that ultimately wasn't that big of a problem. I was, you know, because I was I'm still having a good time the whole way through. I'm invested the whole way through. Um, and I'm, I'm, there's always something to look at or like, you know, I think Edgar Wright has always been like the king, like the king of editing. Yeah. Like, I, and this is a very different style than even, yeah. oh, even yeah. baby driver. I mean, um, you, you can see the connection between like the Cornetto trilogy and sure. to, to Scott Pilgrim to baby driver. Like you can see, yeah, that. it's that, it's that quick hip hop editing that, you know, the quick cuts and the. But that kind of thing is this is much more kind of a fluid style editing. But I think he, he, again, like I think as a technical filmmaker, he's one of the best. It, uh, it plays into all of his normal like obsessions, but it feels more restrained than, you know, some of his, his other stuff. Yeah. It feels very um, skillful, very like a surgeon at work. There is lots of like tricky shots and stuff in the movie, especially when we're in like the 60s fantasy stuff. And, you know, sometimes it's just Eloise on the frame and sometimes it's on Taylor Joy. And and I'm pretty sure those were all done in camera. Um, 
Like some, the, the mirror shots? Yeah, the mirror shots and stuff like that, where it would be one character, then there's kind of a, a, a whip pan, and then you t- she becomes another character. Like the, there's all, all, the, all this kind of like fluid psychedelic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all of that's done really, really well. I love the way the movie's lit. Um, I, you know, I talked about like, you know, Blood and Black Lace and like the Mario Bava influence on it. Um, yeah. He also, I, I mean, the soundtrack is also great without feeling like, you know, like that overly needle droppy, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, for a lot, like the first, like, again, the first half of this movie, I was like, this is what Cruella should have been. <laughs> um, I, I was I mean, actually, I would say even through the end of the movie. It was yeah, fine. yeah. Fair enough. Um, it, you know, the, it's a lot more a little deeper cuts and things like that. A little bit more specific music choices, mm-hmm. um, but also very in, uh, indicative of, of the time period that he's trying to evoke. We also have Diana Rigg and uh, oh, Terrence yeah. Stamp, who are playing um, characters in here, and both of them are obvious, you know, sort of nods to the time period because they're 60, or, you know, came from that time period. Diana Rigg was the Bond girl in in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, she was. Um, I mean- and she was the original Emma from uh, the uh, British television series, The Avengers has nothing to do with Marvel. Yeah. Yeah. And Terrence Stamp was in a bunch of these kind of things back then, too. So, I mean, I, I, all of that stuff is like done, done really well, cast really well. Oh, Even- and, and also Terrence Stamp. And uh, he is just like chewing every scene. Sure. Just like to the bone, but in the best way. Yeah. And that one, I knew there was going to be a twist. Uh, there's some, you know, I was just having so much fun with it that I was like, I kind of hope that it's not. I kind of hope that it, it <laughs> is what it seems because yeah, uh, he is so villainous. <laughs> right. This old fucking pervy guy. Yeah. I don't believe I've seen her in anything else, but Sonova Carlson, who plays her caddy oh, roommate yeah, as, uh, uh, her roommate jacosta uh, yeah is she's she steals every scene she's in oh, um, i also uh, think that uh i've never heard of michael ayaho before either but he's he's a uh, uh you know also really good as this like he was in attack the block was he yeah oh shit yeah i mean that movie's a kind of a while ago um but uh and it has edgar Wright uh connections as well um yeah but yeah that uh He's a uh, he's really good in this as as her kind of like crush in the movie. Well, and and I think he he provides a, a much needed like contrast to the way all the other men are depicted in this movie. Right. And there is there is kind of a narrative here, a subtext about misogyny and about, you know, the oh, way I, that I don't think it's subtext. Well, yeah, (laughs) and I think that that is plays a little bit into the idea of people always think of a time period before them as being the good old days when Mm. actually, eh, you know, there was a lot of fucked up stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. every every decade has a lot of ghosts. Yeah, exactly. Um, I so you all of that stuff I like. You kind of compared this to um, Baby Driver, and I think. Baby Driver is maybe a little more immediately accessible, but I think this movie, and I loved Baby Driver, but I think this movie, probably the more interesting movie, I think it, it's trying to say a little bit more. Um, 
yeah, I, I think if anything, you know, maybe this is one of those cases where it is maybe a little too ambitious because he's trying to balance a lot of plates in this movie. And yeah. for the most part, I think he's successful. But where, you know, whereas Baby Driver's a little bit more of a straightforward, you know, car chase movie. Yeah, I think, you know, the big difference between the two is on a narrative level, Baby Driver's not taking as many risks. It's more yeah. an exercise in style, which yes. is what yeah. I basically took it for. And I like it, but it was a little empty calories for me. Whereas with this movie, he he's going for it with the character stuff. And he is taking bigger risks and he's trying to really like delve into narrative, but I feel like he starts to lose control a little bit and he sort of leans on his style to pick up the slack. And that's when I feel like it fails a little harder for me because he's promising more. I, yeah, I guess I see that again. I, I don't know that I entirely agree with you, but I, there is something I, I just I can't quite put my finger on it, but um, also between baby driver and this, and I, you could say Scott Pilgrim as well. When is he going to just make a musical? Oh, right. Like yeah. he so badly wants to like, just, just do it, dude. Just, mean, just go make a musical. I'm, you know what? I'm fine with him doing music just the way he is, but I also think he could make an incredible musical. Yeah, I'm not saying I don't. I don't mean that in a in a derisive way. I I think it's clearly in in his wants and desires as a filmmaker to do, and he's sort of finding his way of doing it throughout his career. Well, um, yeah, I mean, he, you know, him, and when it comes to music, I think it's fair to compare him to Tarantino and the way they use music sure. to to drive uh their story and, mm -hmm. and um and the way they use music to pace a scene yeah absolutely um yeah. And, and you know we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about the sparks brothers documentary but mm -hmm. like clearly uh you know he he is a music fanboy he, he clearly yeah. has uh you know that obsession which i think is great that he you know he lets it inform his work. Like it has, it has such a different, it has such an Edgar Wright signature to it. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel like somebody who's trying to copy Tarantino. Right. Which a lot of the times with like soundtrack heavy movies, it does, it can feel kind of, well, yeah, I, mean, um, I don't cynical. Or, or a little lazy, like we're, we want you to feel a certain way, so we'll just remind you of this song. Whereas with him, it always, his, his music choices and music placement always seems very deliberate. Oh, it, yes, it absolutely is. And, and I just, I'm saying I, he definitely has, he has a different flavor than Tarantino. He uses yeah. it differently. You know, I think it's easy to compare them because they both, are obviously music obsessives and the way they use it, but it, it, you know, it's like how painters can use the color red and get entirely different shades out of it. Right. I, the reason I, I bring it up more here than other places in his, his filmography is because, I mean, with the exception of Scott Pilgrim, where you have performance scenes because mm. the characters are in bands in this movie, they're straight up, you know, song and dance numbers. That yeah. are 
that are sort of placed in a very musical like fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it seems like he's, he's teasing it out or he's testing it out. I mean, maybe and I think he should go it. for it. I think he should, yeah. I think he should just go like full on, you know, Baz Luhrmann, whatever, like just make a musical. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I know I'd see it. Yeah. What are you grading this? I give it a B minus. I, I, and again, I'm grading it on his, his curve. Okay. It's good. People should see it. I think they would like it if they saw it. I just don't think it's, I don't think it fulfills entirely as a character piece, which it was trying. And I don't think it really fulfills all that much as a horror film either. So it ends up just being a cool movie that's trying some stuff. I did want it to be a little scarier. Yeah. Um, which, you know, when we saw, uh, I, I said that and Ashley's like, no, it was like just the right amount of scary. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I'm floating between like an A minus and a B plus. Okay. So, uh, what, you know, whatever that is, a, a B plus a minus for me. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, guess, I guess if I'm grading it on a curve, I'll give it the B minus. If I'm just grading it as like, you know, a movie I saw, I'd I'd give it the the A minus. Yeah, it certainly has a lot more kind of style and substance and personality than your average AMC at the mall movie. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just there was a point in the movie when I realized I wasn't having as much fun as I wanted to. All right. And I kind of felt like the movie got away from itself a little, but it kind of comes back around and it's, it's still worth a watch. Let's talk about his other film that he released this year, which is you assigned as the uh, streaming homework. This yes, is uh, very excited when I saw this was on Netflix. Finally. Yes. The Sparks brothers. I remember this uh, coming out and this is a documentary that he made about a, uh, a pop music group called the Sparks or just Sparks, a two-person group, uh, Ron and Russell Mayle uh, from Southern California who kind of entered into like the early 70s glitter rock power pop world um, and never really took off in the States. And they, had, they went across the ocean and had a bit more of a positive uh, reputation in London or, or England, rather, um, and um, how, we're kind of a cult success over there. And then the, the documentary sort of goes from there and talks about kind of just goes through their entire whatever it is, 16, 18 album catalog. I mean, they had 25 albums. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it. it kind of just talks about where they were, the creative choices they made, who they influenced along the way, you know, their, the, how many times they almost made it and didn't, um, and you, what was holding them back and, you know, what their ultimate legacy has become amongst sort of the pop rock elite um, who they've now influenced. This is one of those bands where it's like, you probably haven't heard them, but they're your favorite band's favorite band. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say it's somebody who's, I like, I like music. I, this is stuff I actually like pay attention to. And a lot of the stuff that they were 
you know, a lot of the genres that they were hanging around, I would have thought I would have run into them at some point. Yeah. So that was uh, something I was going to ask. So you've never heard of Sparks before this documentary? Not really. No. And I was listening to hear like, uh, surely with all of this material, a song will come on. I'll be like, oh, I've heard that on blah, blah, blah. And that never really happened. However, I will say I heard a thousand bands that I've, that I have listened to that directly lifted from them. Right. Um, When when, like some of their first songs they were playing, I was like, Oh, that's of Montreal. (laughs) Yes. Like, Oh my God. Right. Yeah. I like when, 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 when of Montreal kind of like shifted gears from being a Beatles ripoff and a little bit of Bowie. And then when they started going more glam rock directions, yeah, I thought of Montreal. I thought MGMT, oh, especially yeah. I, that second album. Um, well, a lot I thought of uh, Wolf Parade. Um, yeah, a lot of like that late, like like you know that like 2010 to 2015, like like indie pop stuff. Yeah. yeah, that was that was specifically referencing like 70s glitter rock and power pop stuff. Bands like not not only Sparks, but you know stuff like Slade and. And um, uh, Roxy Music and and all those kind of bands, uh, T-Rex. And I love all of that. And then, of course, you know, they talk about their 80s work and or their late 70s, early 80s work. And they they went in a more synth direction and completely inspired, like, all of that 80s synth pop. Yeah, when when they were talking about their, like, 1979 album that was, Mm -hmm. like, all synth that they did with Giorgio Moroder, I was like, oh kind of holy fuck <laughs> yeah i mean 79 78 79 that's when that started happening more uh craft being sort of the obvious big biggie in the world of like early electronic music mm-hmm. but yeah like them like you can hear like that the way they combine like pop rock sensibility with disco and and uh um what would now be called techno like it was a direct influence on bands like, like Erasure and the Pet Shop Boys. And, you know, and they talk about that pretty openly. So, yeah, I mean, I was like, yeah, about every like fifth album or so that they talked about, I was like, oh, I mean, even just, and also just like the style of the band, like they're, they're kind of funny, like they have a sort of a quirky sense of humor. I'm like, oh, this is kind of like what Ween did in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Like they weren't maybe not as musically influenced, but like their whole vibe was very similar to the Male Brothers. Yeah, that's a good that's a good uh comparison. And then there's even stuff where it's like this reminds me a little bit of like the Brendan Smalls when he's not doing death metal stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, I like that they bring up uh, you know, they talk to Weird Al and they talk about specifically yeah. their sense of humor and just be, kind of because of the fact that they had one, uh, you know, they were they were pretty self-aware. And uh, and that might have been one it. of the things that held them back, honestly, exactly. because yeah, I think, because... the you know, especially back in like the 70s and 80s, male yeah. rock star, macho, you know, you sold yourself as a, as a God on stage. Yeah, and that was know. never really their vibe. Exactly. They were always. And so I think, you know, the fact that like cheap trick kind of pulled off the, the goofy thing a little bit, but they even, they had to curb that a little bit with sex appeal. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
you know, but they kind of had the sex appeal too. like the lead singer. He was, you know, he was young cutie. Uh, He seemed to be pretty popular with the ladies. But I think, yeah, it seemed like maybe some people, especially for an American sensibility. uh, Yeah, maybe it was easy to write them off as a novelty act, especially when, you know, at the time we were starting to edge our way into punk rock and right. And they talk uh, a little bit about how they had a slight influence on that. Well, I mean, glitter rock is, and power pop is always sort of a predecessor to punk in a lot of ways anyway. But yeah, I mean, I think that um, in a way that the whole like glam rock thing, like the British glam rock thing, with the exception of Bowie who really crossed over to America mm-hmm. um, that was always kind of a niche scene like yeah so a lot of the subject matter i thought was really interesting and then um let's talk about you know the documentary as a movie which i think is interesting because it's directed by edgar wright edgar wright is obsessed with music yes these musicians were obsessed with movies uh yes that was an interesting sort of cross parallel kind of thing is like the, there's several times in their their career where they had opportunities to work with directors at one point they were going to work with tim burton on a on a, a film based on a manga at one point they were yeah. going to work with jacques tati in the 60s who was like you know a late french new wave kind of guy and then uh most recently they ended up doing a film which this is the one thing I actually knew about before seeing this documentary, the film Annette, mm-hmm. which just came out with Adam Driver, uh, directed by Leo Skarax, um, which I still need to see. But um, yeah, they ended up, you know, that ended up being a Sparks collaboration. Yeah, yeah. So I just I think that is another interesting aspect. And and, you know, Edgar Wright being mm. Edgar Wright does this documentary with a fair amount of style, especially early on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of cutaways. There's a lot of um, fun, like setups. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's a definitely big sense of humor in the movie. Um, yeah. It, I mean, it's very, you know, it's a very watchable poppy documentary. It's very, um, uh, you know, easy going down. Yeah. I, I was actually kind of surprised though, given that it's a great, how stationary it is, how, you know, it's basically a talking heads documentary for the most mm-hmm. part, right? Like it's, it's all interview stuff except for some, you know, archival footage that they pull from like pop of the or top of the pops or, you know, different live, live things they did or whatever. Sure. I, you know, I think, when you're talking about stuff from that period, like unless they had a camera crew following them around, which why would they, you know? Right. Not everybody has like loads of B roll, but, but I would still, I I was kind of, I was a little surprised by, by the fact that there wasn't like as much clever editing as you might be used to seeing from Edgar Ride or like maybe some like, you know, animation or something like that. Well, and those kind of things can get in the way of a documentary sometimes. I mean, but, but there also was, you know, some animation. Like there was a uh, actually a fair amount. Oh, of, actually, like, yeah. Now that I'm thinking cartoons, about cartoons, there were like the, yeah. the weird claymation puppets that would pop up every once in a while. Like I actually thought they did a lot of uh, uh, really clever, like sort of supplemental shots. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I forgot there was there they do play out like entire sequences as them as cartoons. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> like like literally. Yeah. Um, um and all that stuff is really funny. The one thing I will say about this as a as a criticism is it is fucking long. It's it is, long. It's two, you know, it's two and a half hours. And also just the way their story is just the nature of their story, it does start to get a little repetitive because, you know, they don't have like the, um, like a lot of the typical rock star stories where it's like, you know, and then they got high and then they spent all their money on drugs and then they got sober. Right. Uh, Yeah. There's no like behind the music arc. Yeah. It's it's more just like they were flirting with success. They'd get really big in a, a specific record or you know or at a specific part of the world yeah and you know their next one would flop you know so the the just the nature of their story does start to feel a little repetitive it does start to you know like i don't know that we necessarily needed to go album by album right i think that i think that becomes sort of a a pacing issue for the movie is this choice the choice to kind of play it out like every every segment of the movie is an album cycle. Um, and I get the story he's trying to tell. It's like, well, you know, it's because they were so ahead of their time that it, sometimes it played to their advantage and sometimes it didn't. For sure. But, and I definitely think all of that's interesting. But it's, you know, once we hit about the two hour mark. Yeah, I think some of that could have been truncated a little bit. Um, mm. uh, and, and I, I, you know, I think, you know, maybe hit more on the pillars of these, these examples you want to give rather than go every album cycle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It just, it, it starts to feel a little uh, just redundant, you know? Yeah. Especially because the story itself doesn't really change all that much. I mean, other than like, Oh, you know, I did think it was kind of funny. It's like every time they wanted to sort of change their musical style or change whether they're going to move or whatever they just fire their entire band <laughs> they're just like no nah, yeah, we're well, done not only that they fire their entire band and then move halfway across the across world. the world yeah so they you know they started in california moved to move to england come back to california um yeah it, it's it's kind Toward of funny germany for a couple of years yeah uh and they i mean they had a, they had a wild ride while they, you know, while they were going about it. And I think there's something to be said about, you know, being the type of band, a kind of cult band that maintains a level of respectability and relevance, Yeah, but you never like reach those highs that can make a, a band hate each other or just implode. For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it, there's something very cool when you can still be around to do a dual album with Franz Ferdinand, uh, another band that is very clearly influenced by them. Sure. Yeah, I was actually surprised I never heard of that project because that's, you know, I mean, I, I guess I haven't really followed them in a long time, but um, Franz Ferdinand, that is. Yeah. But yeah, I just felt like that would have floated across me at some point. Well, yeah, I haven't. I, I mean, they they hit really big in America you know, with their first album and then yeah, uh, first two albums. And then after that, they, you know, yeah, yeah. That market was kind of dried up for them, I think. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, 
get what you're saying though. Like there's something cool that they can be, you know, still in 2020 respected and, and still trying to push, you know, their music writing, uh, uh, you know, and they're still kicking. They're still around, but not in a like a sad kiss farewell tour till you know they crumble. Right? Yeah, dust they're not doing. Home. They're not doing like the county fair circuit. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So you know, I, they're I they're still actually like doing creative, interesting things, like doing the soundtrack for a Leo Scarax film. Well, um. Yeah, that's I mean, pretty the, wild. The, and isn't that a musical? Like they did. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I haven't seen it, so I can't say, but um, I was a big fan of uh, Carax's movie, Holy Motors. And then that one has musical sequences in it, amongst other things. I mean, that movie's just batshit insane. So, yeah, I, I really want to yeah, we'll, see it. We'll have to watch have to, uh, Annette before the year is up. For sure. It's, it's on my list of stuff to catch up with. It was before this. Um, but, yeah, I, uh, I they're still... They're still competitive in like the world of, you know, interesting creative pop music, not just a nostalgia act. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, the fact that they're still. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I I think their story was fascinating. Like, you know, all the people they interviewed and they're like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, I mean, you have everybody from like, I mean, obviously the, the guys in France, Ferdinand, Beck. Uh, that one guy from Fun, <laughs> um, <laughs> Flea from the Chili, Flea peppers. from the Chili Peppers, yeah, uh, who uh, played with them a little while when they were in L.A. Uh, yeah, so I mean, you get you get to see, you know, the 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 Tom wide Lundgren. scope of their uh, of their influence. Totally, yeah. So I, I enjoyed this as a music doc. I think it's really uh, fascinating. Introduced me to a band that I want to catch up with. I want to listen to to their stuff. I mean, there's a lot fucking there. Um, yeah, well, but the the documentary is kind of nice, though, because it does go album by album. Like there were definitely yeah. ones, you know, where my ears kind of perked up a little bit more. Mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. I was like, "Ooh, I think this sounds like more of an introductory album for me." Just like you know, knowing my sensibilities, like I'll right. probably appreciate this one more. So uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to kind of delve into their catalog a little bit um, for sure yeah and i, I mean I, li- I like a lot of that like both you know 70s glam rock and 80s synth pop and all the rest of it so um it all sounded like you know stuff i would appreciate so i'm i'm happy to be introduced to the band um the documentary is kind of long um i'm you know for the casual viewer i don't know unless you're a big kind of like music head i don't know how like uh interested you'll remain it yeah it well it almost it almost feels like this could have been like us like a mini series you know it has kind of a tv quality to it and i think that's what i meant by by the sort of restraint not terribly cinematic aspect of it is it feels kind of like a netflix the type of thing and i don't mean that in a bad way there's i you know i love a lot of the music docs that are on on Netflix yes and no, I don't know. I think they're, you know, they're obviously uh, also like all, there is also a lot of like cinematic quality to it though. Like I think the talking heads nature of it is due more to there just not being a lot of other footage besides them playing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, maybe I'm, maybe it's in the sense of 
you know, how it plays out narratively. I mean, it's definitely minimalist, but I, yeah. I think intentionally so. It's it it always felt like a choice. It never felt like a um like there, we're just doing this to to make a documentary. Like yeah, there's there's a visual style to the film for sure. And it and the, it is a minimalist style. And I and I, I think to some degree they're kind of playing on like their record covers and like the way they present themselves. One and also um, uh the band, you know, the f- the reputation of mystery they're playing yeah. into. Like, you know, there's a there's an FAQ section in the movie. There's um part where they're just like listing fake facts. Like Yeah, they're they're very funny characters. Um for for a documentary, you know, they're they're great subjects because you can they're obviously very comfortable in front of a camera and they mm-hmm. play up to their reputation. They're almost kind of like the Coen brothers of pop music. <laughs> like they they have their they have their own kind of like you know secret twin language to each other. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're fun to watch in, in any of it. And of course, all of like the the of uh, the other people they bring on to talk about them are entertaining as well. Yeah. And then you even get a little bit of uh commentary from Edgar Wright from behind the camera. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I, I, I enjoyed this, but it is, it is long in the tooth. Yeah, I agree. But, uh, but I do think it is a fun watch. It is, it is, I think it's poppy enough that, you know, it keep, it kept my attention the whole way. I, mm-hmm. It's just, there was a point where I was like, okay, I get it. They, you know, they never, got the success they wanted, but, but then I think it, you know, it also wraps up on some pretty nice notes. So. Yeah. It's just some of the stuff in the, there's a, some chunks in the middle where it could have been truncated a little bit. Yeah. yeah you could have skipped an album or two <laughs> and then, you know, pull out 20 minutes or so of the movie. I, uh, Holy shit though. Like if you were a sparks fan, the, the, the thing they did at the end where they do all of their albums live. In, yeah. In, that's crazy. That's insane. Yeah, like, they had to, like the the band that they're with currently had to learn three hundred plus songs to be able to to do a whatever it was twenty night playthrough of their entire catalog. Yeah, I yeah. that part I was like, holy shit! Like that is one of the most ambitious things I've ever heard of. That's yeah, insane. logistically, it probably would have been easier to have like four or five house bands learn different albums so that they they didn't have to keep 300 songs in their head, but like, damn. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was impressive in and of itself. All right. So the movie I'm going to have us uh, talk about the next time we do an episode is uh, a movie called mazes and monsters. This was a TV movie from the early eighties starring Tom Hanks about dungeons and dragons. Um, and I know it's kind of a, it's almost sort of like a Star Wars holiday special type of thing for people who are into D and don't know if it's that bad or if it's that good, but we're going to find out it's on Tubi. Um, so if anybody wants to talk about that or any of the movies we talked about on this episode, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod can follow me individually on twitter and instagram at vc cassidy you can read the reviews i do for the idaho state journal by googling idaho state journal movies and you'll see my review archives um you can also go to the mcguffins 
page, mcguff.in, and that'll show you all the other reviews and articles that are written by the rest of the MacGuffin staff, as well as the links to the podcast archives. Um, if you do listen to us on one of our, whatever your favorite podcast app is, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Player.fm, please leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review. It helps other people see the show, pushes up in the review algorithm or whatever the hell. Yeah, I think I think that's it. Uh, yeah, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Um, come join me on Twitter and help me rage at all the NFT nerds. Um, <laughs> it's it's a good time. Uh, you can also follow my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. And that's the end of the episode. All pop music is rearranged Vince Clark or rearranged Sparks. That's the truth. Bye.